Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. This is number 13. We are moving up in the numbers, people. So, this week, this is going to probably be one of my personal favorite discussions on a plant. Because long have I looked at chrysanthemums and thought two things about them. Enough with these mums in the fall outside of grocery stores. That's my number one thought. Number two, where do they fit? Somewhere along the line, chrysanthemums got hijacked, probably by two parties, but we'll talk. And I have Brian from King's Mums with me as my guest this week. And Brian, we're gonna, I'm going to get right into this. Chrysanthemums. As a grower of, you do a ton of varieties. Are you right. sick of people thinking the only chrysanthemums that exist are the mums outside the grocery store in October? Uh, yes and no. I'm just not exposed to it as I once was. Um, you know, I have a pretty isolated life. But yes, when people think of the chrysanthemum, all they think of are these round blobs in the fall that you see everywhere. And half of them are dried out and dying when they get them. So yes, I'm tired of that perception. Yeah. And you have one of probably the most interesting stories. And I don't even know the complete tale yet. Before we started recording, we were talking about this. So chrysanthemums. The industry, the money people, when you think about money, the money in chrysanthemums has historically been in greenhouse production of the outside the grocery store mums. But you somehow, Brian, weaved a tale of getting to be the owner of King's Mums. But you said to me before we recorded that chrysanthemums weren't like your, your first big passion. So how did you get to be the owner of King's mums. Anyways, how did, how did we get here? <laughs> it's a it's a winding tale, I guess you would say. Um, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. So my I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I have associate's degree in horticulture. On completing my degree, I had no idea what I wanted to do exactly, but I saw an internship poster for Longwood Gardens, which if no one is familiar with Longwood, uh, please look it up and you'll be amazed. I was fortunate enough to get chosen as an intern to work in the nursery for three months. And this was right around the uh, 9-11 attacks when I was there. After three months, I decided I really like it here. Um, it was If I could have stayed forever, I would have. I worked 35-hour weeks as an intern, was given housing, and we went on a field trip every week to another garden, which uh, there are tons of gardens in the Northeast, as you may know. Uh, very historic. It was great. Uh, in the greenhouse is one of my first jobs. I became ill almost immediately uh, just with a stomach bug, but I needed to make up hours. And to do so, I helped a woman named Yoko Arakawa, who was in charge of the chrysanthemum production, make the baskets uh, for the mum balls that would be produced later in the year. Um, so I was just lining them with sphagnum. Uh, apparently, I did a good job because she requested me later on for a certain task. And that was where my first introduction of chrysanthemum was unbeknownst to me uh it would become form a big part of my life so and, and for um, those of you and at that time brian and for anybody that doesn't know longwood has historically done a really large chrysanthemum display and i'm assuming that's what you were working on that time and i mean and it, it, like yeah. brian said it's it, it's chrysanthemums to the maximum right it, it's just right sculptural <laughs> chrysanthemum shapes and objects and and how many chrysanthemums right. do they use? And I'm sure you know this. Uh, how many chrysanthemums do they usually know. display? Ballpark us. It's got to be in the thousands, so, right? Yeah, I would assume tens of thousands because it's not just 
it's not just one single crop. It'll be a crop and then there'll be a change out. So you probably have early season and late seasons. They're growing, you know, the typical garden moms and then they're growing florist moms. You have your disbudded uh, and there's 13 classes of chrysanthemums. So you have spiders and irregular incurves. And some of these flowers are you know, up to the size of a basketball in certain cases. That's extreme. Most of those would be there's eight to 10 inches across one flower. Um, and their big thing now is the thousand bloomer, which is a grafted mom. They're already growing it for the fall of next year, and they will get 1,000 flowers on an individual plant. Um, and it is just exceptional. So, wow. um, they're the only ones in this country doing it. They were working on those the initial phases when I was there. So that's almost 20 years now, and so, they've pretty so much perfected it. That's your first exposure directly hands-on and like you said right. did you know that you'd have many more hands-on days with chrysanthemums <laughs> so we're, we're right we're at longwood and then where do we go from there um finished my internship i'd worked with yoko worked in many different areas uh, i couldn't start looking for a job um and i decided i wanted to stay in public horticulture if i could uh just like it was just a lot of fun to grow plants for the purpose of growing them and displaying them not to just turn the crop out, push it out the door and make money. Um, anyone can, well, anyone can do anything, but that just wasn't fun to me. Um, so I got a job at Callaway. Um, went down there unbeknownst to me, they had fired the greenhouse manager before I got there. So I walked into a hornet's nest. Um, of course you're young and think you can conquer the world at that time. So it was a lot easier, but I did not like it. Had reapplied for a job at Longwood. I accepted the job, but then I met my her wife unbeknownst to me so uh, she was working had a similar experience funny enough uh, where she had done her degree and done an internship at Longwood and went to Callaway to get her first job so decided I would stay talk to my uh, the director of horticulture and he told me he would promote me to senior grower um, if I would stay which would you know compensate me enough to stay uh, the main reason he was keeping me, though, he didn't tell me this, was because I knew about chrysanthemums and how to grow the Cascade mums, and no one else did. So um, that became uh, kind of a, an integral part to me. So we spent 10 years there, and this is where the fun part of chrysanthemums come in. Um, I was in charge of you know, getting the displays together and learning how to do all of these things on my own, some of the scheduling problems that I was not taught before. And we would buy the Cascades in from King's Moms in March. Um, we were keeping some of our own stock, but it became just a, a headache for me personally, growing other crops like poinsettias, and then getting into the spring where you have to light these plants at night. Now I'm affecting the growth cycle of other plants because I'm lighting a greenhouse over here, and it's interfering with the flower production on plants in another greenhouse. Um, so that was my first interaction with King's Moms buying their Cascade for Santa Moms. And Ted, uh, and Ted, who was the original owner of Kings, right? He had originally been growing chrysanthemum in California, right? Right. He started the business just, I think, on a whim more than anything, just to share the plants in the 50s. Um, he says, well, the documentation I have is that he started sending his first catalog about 1952. Um, but I have catalogs older than that that are just, what I got with the business when I purchased it. I think one says 48. Um, but he put a lot of time into this and it was a passion of his. You can really tell. Um, and he, you know, talking, we got to meet him one time in person 
uh, with his daughter, Lana, and they ran the business. And I remember dealing with Lana when I was at Callaway, you know, talking with her on the phone, buying plants, okay, and uh, paying her. <laughs> Another fun part. But yeah, he, he built the business, and I view myself as a steward of these plants more than anything. I'm not, I'm not a breeder. I'm a grower, um, which this is a different type of growing than I had experienced before. So at this point, so we're, 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 we're down in Georgia at this point. Yep. Right. So we're, yeah, in, we are. And that's when you get this interaction and, with Kings and then right. all of a sudden we're, I mean, one thing for Brian here that, that Brian will completely relate to. And I relate to this. You've picked some really diverse parts of the country to deal with climate, like <laughs> the difference between like <laughs> yeah. Pennsylvania to Georgia. And then eventually we end up in Oklahoma. Like we're going the right. gamut here of humid, dry, right. yeah. hot, dry, cold, wet winters, et cetera. So you're getting to experience a lot of knowledge is the way I like to think of it, Brian. It gives us a good knowledge yep. base of what to deal with. So we're in Georgia. We're having the interaction with King's Moms. And then what? Um, just years of trials and tribulations. Um, and that's where probably the part where chrysanthemums are not one of my funnest, my favorite crops to grow. We had Hurricane Francis come through, and this would have been before Ivan. I'm trying to remember the exact year but it's eluding me. I want to say 2000 and maybe seven, somewhere six to eight, but it came through and it drenched our area. And the fun part where we were, the greenhouses were located, were really in a floodplain. Um, so it flooded my mom field and it brought a strain of pythium, uh, warm season pythium that I, apparently we hadn't seen in a long time. I was not familiar with it. The typical treatment for pythium is you subdue max. So go out, drench with subdue, and my plants start crumbling by the thousands. Um, if you can imagine walking a gravel field of eight-inch chrysanthemums that are just about, oh, two-thirds of the way through their growing cycle, and then watching them wilt on a daily basis and just turn to mush, that's what I went through. <laughs> wow. Um, and, 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 not- speak, and speak to Pythium for a second for us. And that's something, the, we, we, there's two points here. Number one you're you're dealing with at that year a completely abnormal weather condition with the deluge of rain that you get and just it's that perfect storm that sets up for you so walk us through that and then how rare that probably was is an experience like we talked about also earlier that it's that moment that you go oh wait i haven't seen this before (laughs) yeah yeah I've, i've had many of those in growing um, yeah, we just didn't know what it was. Um, and I went through and, you know, as soon as I could get the plants dry, I drenched them to begin with, just knowing we had had so much water, they really need a root treatment. And Pythium, for those who don't know, it's really a water mold. So it travels with the water. And once you have it, it just spreads. Well, I started watching where the disease was popping up and lo and behold, it was in low lying areas. So I, oh, great. It's in the soil now, um, which changed my growing procedures from then on. <laughs> but but we there was nothing we could do. By the time I got it diagnosed by UGA, it, it was too late. Um, you know, it was probably two weeks after when I sent a sample in when I realized I have a major problem. I knew it was pythium. Um, it was another two weeks before I really got an answer. And this disease went up the East Coast and it affected a lot of growers because of the track of that hurricane. And it must have just been in the water wherever it came across the Caribbean. And just reset it into the environment. Um, 
I don't really know beyond that because many growers had the same issue. And then we got new guidelines on when to use subdue. Um, so we don't use subdue in warm season anymore. At least I do not. I don't know if other growers yeah. do. <laughs> so, so we have this, this. So one of our very first experiences with chrysanthemums, you know, at scale, <laughs> at bigger scale, not so great. So, <laughs> so you're yeah. immediately left yeah. with this impression <laughs> of them. So we're there. And then I think you said your wife gets an opportunity in Oklahoma. And that's what, what originally happens, right? Right. We Well, we had looked around here and there from time to time. We weren't unhappy in our jobs. We, we really loved what we were doing. We loved working there. But we just had kind of, we had had a child and we said, well, maybe we should start looking to diversify because um, it's too, it's, it's hard for two people to stay in public horticulture, especially at the manager level. Um, she has a higher degree. So we were just looking. She did not want to apply. I kind of, circumstances, I had pushed her towards it and then something happened that triggered, I need to apply for this job. So she applied for the job at the Philbrook Museum of Art, um, or it was garden manager over the entire gardens. And they called her almost the next day. And lo and behold, she got the job. Um, and she's from the Stillwater, Oklahoma area. That's about 60 miles away from where we are. So I started looking for a job anywhere. Of course, I wanted to stay in public horticulture, but uh, there's just not a lot of it here in Oklahoma. It's very limited. They just opened the Tulsa Botanic Garden, which was literally just land out there about five years ago, but they're really doing good things. And beyond that, there's not much else in the Tulsa area. So I started to look around. I started applying for jobs. After three months, I just said, I'm, I'm striking out here. And I had remembered something that um, just something kind of piqued my interest with Kings. And I thought maybe they want to sell. And I had known Ray and Kim. They had purchased it from uh, Ted in around 2008. And it just so happened I knew them personally. Their son was getting his master's degree at Georgia Tech. And they would come down to Georgia and visit him and come to Callaway and see the plants. And we would talk and visit. So we had a, you know, a nice personal relationship there as well. So just on a chance, I wrote them and said, would you be interested in selling? And I think the next day, maybe that night, they wrote back and said, yes, we would like to retire, actually. Wow. Now, <laughs> now, now walk everybody through that, right? Because this is sort of an interesting thing. And at the time, they're growing in Georgia with King's Moms at the they're time? In, they're in, no, they are in Oregon. They're in Oregon City, Oregon. Okay, so King's, so Moms, they, King's Moms has moved. Like King's Moms has had yeah. some moves, right? California, Oregon, now yeah. Oklahoma. So when, <laughs> right. you, when you come to this place, when you're like, okay, I'm, I want to do something. This is an opportunity. What do you buy when you buy a nursery? Brian, that's the question um, everybody's thinking, right? Like, how do you buy a nursery? Like, what does that mean? Well, well my thought on it was twofold. Uh, first of all, I was thinking monetarily on this because I'm, I'm jumping in with two feet. Um, I'm buying a customer base. So I'm out there... People have told me, oh, you want to start a greenhouse? You're going to build greenhouses? You're going to sell plants? I'm like, yeah, that's great. Go ahead. Who are you going to sell them to? Where's your customer base? So uh, right off the bat, I knew that was important. So I knew this was an established business. And I also knew it was a niche business where, you know, there's not a lot of competition out there. So I've got those two things going for me. The other real key for me was I would stay in um, close contact with public horticulture. Um, there's just not a lot of places to plant. And I had connections there with Longwood and other gardens. And I knew 
you know, it, ironically enough, my largest order of the year comes from Phipps Conservatory in Pittsburgh, where I'm from. And that's just a great honor for me to supply them with plants that they display. And my parents can go down and family can go see these plants. So those those were the real two big selling points for me. Um, you know, I was I knew all the plants. I had no idea how many, of course. I'm I'm going on faith at this point, what they're selling and what they're telling me, Ray and Kim, and just that love of serving the public horticulture field. So, so you're essentially so buying it, the almost the the brand, right? right of King's right. Mums and the and you knew the brand. Because of your time at Longwood. Right. So that, that gave right. you some confidence probably that, you know, this wasn't just, you know, somebody saying, oh, yeah, people love us. You knew that within the horticultural circles, King's Mums was known and respected. Right. So, and I, you know, to me, there were things that I didn't know, obviously. I think one of the most overwhelming moments for me in the whole um, transition, I went and stayed with Ray and Kim in their home uh, for a couple of days and learned as much about the business as I could. And there were so many things that I just wasn't thinking about, you know, an ordering database, printing labels, getting things ready, taking care of stock plants. It just the minutia of dealing and, and owning and operating your own business like this, things that they had done. And I was, I think I came back and almost walked away from it. I was so overwhelmed. Mm. <laughs> and how many plants were they, per, how many plants were they producing? annually ballpark well i don't like to get into that just because i feel that gives away um it's it tens of thousands How yeah about that? okay yeah yeah so, so we're so we're also beyond all of the operational task of running the business yeah. oh by the way you also have to take care yeah. of and propagate tens of thousands of plants right. annually right and not only propagate them but you're maintaining your stock which we maintain four to five thousand stock plants wow a year so, so, so let, yeah, let me, you're, we're let me, talking about dahlias. <laughs> let me take a minute and and define that too. So, essentially, what you have are think of it in this way: mother plants, people that right. a lot of the the new material that Brian's creating are coming from those stock plants. So he has to take care of those as sort of like the source of a lot of what you're doing. Right. So those plants, I'm assuming, made the trip from Oregon. To Oklahoma somehow. How did that go? Like, did you, I mean, did you, did you FedEx? Did you do, I'm crazy enough. I would probably get a box truck myself and drive and make sure everything went smoothly. How did you do that? Just logistically. Well, and that was one of the things we had to talk through. So they had originally done that in January. Um, they went to Mr. King and literally ripped up his plants out of California in a box truck, brought them back to Oregon and planted them. Um, I was doing this in the middle of summer. So as the business goes, we sell rooted cuttings, so or plugs, depending on how you want to term it. So they shipped me my when I moved to Oklahoma in July, I had it was right around July first when I got here. I unpacked the truck because my wife was already here and I was living with her parents. So this is lots of fun. <laughs> and the cuttings arrived and we potted four thousand plants and started growing them as my new stock. Wow. So I was having to maintain these while we were looking for a place. So this was a really big leap of faith. We did not have a place to build yet, and we had kind of narrowed it down. I'm maintaining the plants, working through all the numbers, getting my loan, getting the greenhouses I want, all of this organized. And we, So September 1st, we 
was it September 1st? Right around Labor Day, we closed on the house like a few days before, and then we broke ground on building the greenhouses. And then it was just a rush against time, getting the wow. plants over here and getting them in and doing everything, which was, in hindsight, I wonder how we did it. <laughs> no, that, and that, and that's one of the things that I, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, and I think this is true for no matter what scale of growing we're talking about, there are so many periods that are just, to be polite, you call them organized chaos. Yeah. You're, you're not yeah. only dealing with the plants, which are their own needy things, but weather becomes a factor. Time becomes a factor. It's not just what weather you're having. You know the weather's coming. You know this is going to get cold. Wait, this is going to get hot. This is going to get dry. So the amount of variables I can imagine going through your mind at this point. Right. And and, and also, I'm going to throw something else at you that I'm just going to assume is, were you hopeful that by that next early spring, late winter, you'd have some sellable product? Were you that ambitious with it, with thinking that You'd be able to oh, get yeah, to that yeah. place. I, I didn't have a choice. Um, there was no, and that's where the customer base came in. I knew the orders would start to come, and I didn't have a lot of interest. Um, you know, it was it was mainly the the older customers that first year, um, and it was the first year was just nothing but trial and tribulation, learning. Um, the Ray and Kim were great; they helped me out a lot, um, walking me through. But it was a lot of things that I thought I knew that I didn't, know. and then just getting to know the plant. I had never rooted my own cuttings on that kind of a scale. Um, You know, we had rooted them, no problem, but I wasn't under the pressure of meeting a deadline per se, um, or I knew the crop better. So, you know, rooting a colia. So yeah, okay. Two to three weeks, it's rooted, potted up. Um, Things more tropical in nature. And Georgia was just a, I I think it was actually an easier place to root just because of the humidity. Um, Where here in Oklahoma, it was funny to me. I think I was dealing with a professor in North Carolina, and he was. We were going back and forth with Ray about the rooting process, and he said, "No, you have to have them in full sun." I said, "Have you tried to root a cutting in full sun? It's almost impossible." So, um, especially when you just take it, and we're talking about a chrysanthemum. So I had to learn through that, put shade cloth up, and everything I've ever done in growing, whatever I start out with first, that is not what I end up with. And usually it is radically different. <laughs> well, well and, and that is, you know, and you're also inheriting um, a business that is growing right. in the fairy tale land of the Pacific Northwest as well at that time. Right. right? So, you know, I, right. I, I, I joke with so many people often on Instagram, you know, Oregon in the Northwest has some of its own issues, um, but right. soil wise, much better than the rest of the country much more moderate in temperature than the rest of the country. Right. And you can keep going. So you're going from the previous owners having experience there. (laughs) And then before that, California. And now you're like, you know what? Let me go to Oklahoma and see my hottest experience of life, Brian. I will share this with you. And I grew up in Florida. Let's keep this in mind. Was a summer in Oklahoma. I was traveling uh, for the nursery at the time. I want to say it was 2011. And I think it was 114, I believe. Yeah, I think yeah. it was 114 actual, <laughs> you know, actual of 114. And I just thought to myself, wow, this is a tough spot. It's, this is a tough spot to grow it, things. 
Well, and and I we uh, they had a APGA conference here a few months ago, um, just a kind of a regional event, and they brought in a climatologist um, to talk about the weather here. And he was showing the average, and then he would show where, what the average is for Oklahoma, and then he had what the actuals were. And to me, at that point, I realized, which I kind of already knew, there is no real average for Oklahoma. You're either 5 to 10 degrees above or 5 to 10 degrees below. And that's just where the mean is. You are never at that actual average mean temperature. <laughs> Which is very it difficult is for people to, <laughs> and, you know, I, I joke about the U.S. cold hardiness map of how useless it is, really. And <laughs> this is why. Because when we're talking about these parts of the, the country, the extremity on both ends gives you an average right. It's useless. You know, if, if we think about that, people think about if your average, uh, if your two extremes were 100 and zero, well, the average yeah. between the two would be 50, but you're never one right. of those two. You're either zero or 100. So well, the concept of that for you must be like a real challenge in, and also sure. to speak to chrysanthemums, they're historically thought of as a bit of a temperate plant so that they don't like the <laughs> extremity of like an Oklahoma weather. Right, but we grow in a greenhouse, so that's the diff- That's the mitigating factor. Um, and you were talking about those extremes. Sunday, it was nearly 60 degrees. Tomorrow, the high will be will not reach freezing. We're going to have a low of maybe zero. Um, and then by Sunday, it will be 70 degrees. Yes. <laughs> that, so that's normal here. So we've <laughs> gotten the mums. We've gotten our first. We've gotten yep. the mums in our hands. We're getting ready yep. to go greenhouse. We're getting ready to break ground on everything. We've got a customer base. We're hopeful that this right. customer base is going to still be there. And, and let's transition the conversation a little bit towards this. Who is the customer base at that time? And what year are we at? And, and who's your customer base? Who are we selling to primarily? So we are what? That would be 2014. So 2015. Well, this is my fifth year. So 2014 should have been my first growing year. And it's amazing how quickly you lose these memories. Um, the the customer base is, as we talked about, primarily public gardens, and then the society, the National Chrysanthemum Society, is a fairly large customer. And then it, from there, it was a mixture of local cut flower growers and then just individuals who wanted something for their garden. Um, so it was, you know, I thought at the time it was probably about. 25% public garden, 25%, you know, four, four quarters, more or less. So cut flower growers, public horticulture, individuals, and cut flower growers. Um, it has shifted in my time in owning the business, uh, I think, for a couple of reasons. I'm, I'm not really sure what they are, though. But now I would say we're almost at 50% cut flower growers, and then the other three make up the other 50%. So you had mentioned in listening to a couple of the previous Natchez Glenhouse stories. The best gardening podcast, clearly, in the, in the world, Brian. I mean, there's not even a contest. <laughs> I've been saying this lately. There's not even a contest. The caliber of guests, the host. I mean, it's really a beautiful combination. So the, the original group that you inherit on the retail side, outside of the, the public gardens, is right. really more in that flower show world. Again, we've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast about roses and then chrysanthemums and dahlia as well. Chrysanthemums really were in that world. I mean, it was not, it was really not a garden plant. It was really like 
like you said, I mean, I can grow this thing to be as big as a basketball sometimes. There was that group. So how was that interaction for you? Because did you have a lot of experience with, you know, that (laughs) that world of like flower show growers, which is a very unique one? Well, I didn't have the flower show growers, but I had some brief experience with society. Uh, we had a brief stint at the Toledo Botanical Garden, and there they had they didn't have a lot of funding, so they had a hosta collection and a daylily collection, which they had let the societies kind of maintain. Um, and these people are very passionate, but they to be kind about it, sometimes they hijack the purpose and the joy of growing a plant. The joy in growing a plant is to grow it and see the flower. If you can grow a perfect flower, great, but that shouldn't be your end purpose. Um, and that's where they have kind of taken it to. And in seeing them judge the shows for the chrysanthemum, I can only imagine what it's like at Daylily or Dahlia shows. They they get pretty heated. <laughs> which, and people, which, which I'm going to step in here and help Brian with this because Brian runs, you know, business. So the think of it this way, people. You have children. Think if you had to take your children to one of those pageants and have a random group of strangers judge your children in a very critical <laughs> way you'd probably get a little upset occasionally it's sort of what happens at some of these flower shows occasionally is people take a lot of pride in the bloom that they've grown they take a lot of time sometimes obsessively so into the one bloom and then uh jane and joe from down the street wins instead of you and you're like <laughs> jane and joe are cheaters so it's <laughs> It's its own unique world. And this is, and Michael Marriott has talked about this. Several of us have talked about this on the podcast. It's our super passionate group. But the goal of what they're trying to accomplish is completely not the same as you would in a home garden growing dahlia, chrysanthemum, rose, whatever it might be. So you're having to deal with some of that, Brian. Does that, at the yeah. beginning, does that influence you a little bit in like what direction you're taking <laughs> King's Mums? Do you do you have secondary thoughts? Do you think about going back to Georgia? Like where are you at with it at that time? Well, we were too committed. Um, once you commit to something like this, just the monetary outlay is you cannot just walk away. Um, so we didn't really have a choice there. I will say that we got off to a rocky start. Um, when I told them in my first meeting that the chrysanthemum was not my favorite flower, uh, I did not go over the best, but they got over it and forgave me. And we've, you know, I, I appreciate their passion, uh, certainly, um, and their knowledge. And a lot of these people know more about the plants than I do. And I do not consider myself an expert, even though I'm sure I've grown and killed more plants than any of them. So, um, so that, that is wonderful there, but again, they've, they put so much time into the process of growing that they intimidate people. Okay, you know, like we've talked about, you're going to have to get a fresh cutting and start your plan, and you want to start it um, as soon as your last frost date, and as soon as you get it potted, and so many weeks, fertilize it. After that, transplant it. You need to pinch it. You want to train it to three, um, pinch it, train three stems off of there. Now you're staking and tying each individual one. If I've overwhelmed you yet, it's not over. You have to watch for insects disease now your fertilizing regimen and then you have to disbud and take off each flower to get one big flower bud and in the end it may not be perfect. <laughs> um to an average person that's going to be intimidating um like you talked about 
so the joy has been lost by some of these people and just what the flowers can be. So, and that's, that was Ted's original passion. Um, he wanted to share these flowers and just grow them. And you talked about Oregon being this great place to grow, and it is. But in my opinion, for the chrysanthemum, California is the ultimate, mm. just because you have the cool nights, especially where they were, the dry climate, and that bright sunlight. Where Oregon, it's, it's cloudy more and more humid, and the chrysanthemum really doesn't like that. Uh, it really likes drier weather with sun and not extreme temperatures, which here, you know, we have it all. So, well, and one of the things, I, one of the things in your, your current catalog that you sent out, and Ted, the original founder of King's Mums, passed away right. early part of 2018. But one of the things I really smiled at was that Ted was no longer allowed to compete in right. flower shows <laughs> because he was too good, which I, I found really yeah. funny. That was one of my favorite things in um, the write-up about him was that literally yeah. people were like, this guy, again? This is this guy's like the Michael yeah. Jordan of <laughs> chrysanthemums. We're just going to, no more Ted. You can be here. You can help everybody. You can show them. But we're not letting you compete anymore. It's just you're a tad too right. above the amateur grower level. Right. And he, I mean, and he was. Uh, I mean, really, to build the business and do what he was doing, um, he, he really was. And he would introduce a new plant. Um, a lot of these introductions, like we were talking about before, about seed growing, you know, the chrysanthemum hybrids are grown from seed, but it is not an easy process and not something I would even get into at this time. Um, I'm trying to keep them from, you know, cross-pollinating as it is in my own stock, which is a challenge. So to create a new hybrid, it's, I don't know if anybody knows about the tulip process. It's a three-year process to know if you've got a viable tulip just in a flower, what the flower color is going to be. Then you have to trial it after that. The chrysanthemum is very much the same way where you produce the seed, you get thousands of them. Now you have to grow the seed on the flower. Okay, you like the flower. Now you have to make sure it's going to stay viable and keep those traits before you can even go into production. So you're, you're several years into this. So, and, now, <laughs> and now, so you're, you're in Oklahoma, we're, we're, we're knee deep in chrysanthemums, our right. original base. And this is where I think this is going to get really interesting for people, Brian, to hear. So our original base is the flower show world and then the public garden. Right. Those are our two original. Right. So then right. this Instagram thing happens a little bit. <laughs> and there becomes very popular Instagram accounts that may or may not be in the Pacific Northwest. Right. And then the small boutique cut flower farm becomes trending. And we still are. Now their goal or what they want from Brian at King's Mums and Chrysanthemums is completely different. They right. want lots right. of cut flower stems, lots of them, lots of them early, be able to sell them. It's a completely different world. How do we manage that, right? Because now we have a new wrinkle in the, in the tail, right? Now we're like, okay, the flower show people are over in this side of the ring. Over here in this other corner of the ring is the boutique cut flower grower. How different was that experience when the Instagram social media influence starts to come to your business? Well, it's been an interesting, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the word, uh, what we use when rivers uh, come together, but it's eluding me, uh, confluence yeah. um, of events. So the first year I survived, I will tell you right off the bat. And then I started changing things, how I was caring for the stock and how I was brooding. And it continues to evolve. Next year is going to bring about another round of changes. Uh, well, this coming year. Um, but 
the first year we produced and we survived. And then the second year, we were contacted in the fall by, who was it now, Floret Magazine? No, Sunset Magazine. Um, and Aaron, a uh, woman, Aaron Bensikin, one who does Floret, she was online touting us. Um, and Sunset Magazine contacted us. And at the same time, I didn't know this was happening. Martha Stewart Magazine mentioned us in an advertisement. So, um, so this was great for me, free advertising. But we were being marketed to two different areas, the retail, you know, just homeowner, and the cut flower growers. Well, the great thing for me, and then we saw the societies in the public garden area. The cut flower growers want their plants early. They want to grow them out and either make their own cuttings off of their own plants because they can't take the time. And, you know, I've cautioned many of them to think about what your inputs are to keeping this plant going all year in your greenhouse versus just buying a new one. I don't, I don't care if they buy or they don't um, each year. It's, it's totally their call. They have to run a business. But so we've got them. They want them early. The homeowner wants them a little later. And generally, the cut flower or the the uh, chrysanthemum society people, it depends on where they live in the world. So in California, of course, you want them earlier. In the Northeast, you're not even thinking about a plant right now. You're thinking about how much snow am I going to get tomorrow <laughs> and surviving. So it's it's been a really good blend for me business-wise, but that doesn't take away from the pressures of everybody wanting the same plants at the time where we talked about the cut flower growers want certain cultivars. You know, I can probably name off the top 10 that they're buying where the homeowner, you never know what they're going to order. You might have one person order five plants. You might have a person order every single cultivar. And then the show people, they're almost always going to go after the, the largest flowers, the in curves. So you class one, class three, class five, and then you get into spiders and quills mainly. So when they're classified as those, they want the largest flowers. So that's, and it's just funny to me how you'll get one week, I'll have a plant where there's maybe two requested. The next week, it's 80. <laughs> and that's, it's a game. And that is one of the challenges in, you know, in talking to lots of growers at different scales, but all in different plants, too. It's one of the things that we see right, right now is we have all these different groups of people who are buying. Now, let's transition the conversation to this thought. Is This is, to me... I think the the challenge of chrysanthemum. It's a late blooming plant, right? In almost all climates. Where do you see it fitting? Is it a great cut flower? Is it a garden flower? It, where does it go in the if if you just average home gardener? What should we? What are the things we want out of a chrysanthemum? to be a good garden plant? Let's start there first. As far as a good garden plant or for it to perform in your garden well? Um, well. So is it a good garden plant? What we sell are not generally hardy. If you get extended periods of freezing, um, the plants that we sell are not going to come back for you. Now, I, I don't believe it's so much the cold hardiness. I think it's just the amount of water and the roots stay wet and it rots them more than the actual freeze. Because my parents keep them in Pennsylvania, and every year they have five to seven of these plants come back. So it's, 
it's more, I think, of a drainage issue there. Um, and as far as a garden, they will perform in any climate. I've sold these in every state of the union, and I know people grow them um, even in Alaska. So, yeah, so, so they so can really, tolerate any climate. Bit, so would you say it's maybe a little similar to like Dahlia in mm-hmm. northern climates, where if, if right. anything, you may just treat them as an annual, but, but don't right. expect perennial performance from them? Absolutely. It's very similar to that. And if you want to dig it, though, you can treat it like a dahlia and it doesn't have a tuber like a dahlia where it stores that energy. It will store it in the plant stem in the in the roots and you just kind of keep it alive. Um, you know, throw it in a pot. I've heard people putting them um, in cardboard boxes and just storing them almost like a geranium hanging upside down and, and just storing that through the winter. Um, but again, you have to keep it dry and cool. So those know if you want to keep it but as far as a garden plant to me it's a fairly easy garden plant the two big things are just sunlight and water with almost any plant that you deal with um did you put it in the right location and can it can it drain once it's established in the ground they're very tough um you know you'll see the plants late in the afternoon especially you know in in your area where i was in georgia and it could be completely wilted and you water it and the next morning it looks like it was never dry bounce back so it's so, yeah. so if so. we, so if we're in, let, let's walk through the process here of, of getting a chrysanthemum. So w- <laughs> we'll pretend that you own a really huge, beautiful garden slash cutting flower experience called Natchez Glen. Okay, Brian, we're going to pretend that <laughs> I order my chrysanthemums and sh- if I want them to bloom at an earlier stage, should I get them in early and start them in a container? Like, what's sort of the general process for people, like, if they're in, you know, we'll call it typical America, right? Whatever that is, which there is no such thing. But if there was a typical America, (laughs) where would we, when would we receive them? What would we do? And then when would we expect them to bloom? Okay, generally, I recommend for everybody, unless you have a greenhouse or you are just, you know, an expert grower, have a room, I say get them in around her last frost date, spring frost date of the year, not the fall. Um, for two reasons. Chrysanthemums bloom, they are termed a short day plant, which is really a misnomer. It is the length of the night that triggers the chrysanthemums bloom. So if you think of like a Christmas cactus or a poinsettia, we light them at night and interrupt that night cycle. So 13 and a half is the number I use. Um, of when the day, when the night is that long, I'm worried. And they, the literature says that it's nine and a half hours of uninterrupted darkness. So right now, how many hours are we getting? Like 14 yeah. through the night? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot. So I have lights that come on in the middle of the night and break up this cycle, which was, it's termed mum lighting. So generally, if you get them around your last frost date, you're only a few weeks away from reaching that, that point where you'll be okay, um, where, we, where your nights aren't too long. So the other mitigating factor is nighttime temperature. Um, when you get below 55 degrees at night, it can stunt the growth and it can also trigger early flowering. So I don't want to send you a plant with this little cutting. You either put it in the ground or you pot it up. Now you put it outside. Now it just sits there. You get it cold and it, it's used to being in a nice warm greenhouse. And it just says, I'm not going to grow. I'm going to sit here. Um, you water it. It doesn't dry out. All of a sudden it's wilting. Why is it wilting? Well, because you kept it wet and it got a root disease and now it's dead. So those are... Those are the two big things for me. So let's pause, um, let's pause so, on that. Let's pause real quick on this thought. 
because I think this is a really we're going to we're going to get knee deep in horticulture here. People put on your thinking hats. So you just mentioned nighttime hours and its response in triggering hormones and plants to do what they're going to do or not going to do. I think this is a real tricky subject sometimes for people to conceptualize that we have this cutting. It is really a brand new thing in the world. However, it is carrying materials from its parent plant. So when you go to put it in your garden, there is also a minute there where it's got to figure out, what am I supposed to be in life? I actually need to become a big plant. That's what I need to do here. I'm no longer a little side shoot. I'm not a cutting from other plant. Does that make sense to everybody? That's sort of a concept. It takes a little bit of a minute. I'm going to let everybody think on stew on that thought that I just said. So when you talk about those nighttime hours, the, the fear would be, correct me if I'm wrong here, Brian, the fear would be that suddenly the plant's like, oh, wait, it's time for me to bloom. But it's not. Yeah. We want it to put its energy into root establishment, foliar development. That's what we want it to do. So is that the fear right. that suddenly if you have it, it goes out there and it's like, oh, wait a second, I'm, I'm a I'm a big plant. I'm a big plant. Let me make flowers. Yeah. Well, and that's that's a huge fear, fear for me, especially you know, for, for two reasons. One, you're not going to know that that plant is doing that. So in the response time of chrysanthemum is generally expressed in weeks. I don't do that in my catalog because we're in the, the retail world. But generally six to 14 weeks for a chrysanthemum from the start of short days until it will bloom. So, but you don't know that. So you just see a plant that's growing. Then all of a sudden, let's say four weeks down the road, you see a flower bud. What has happened? Why is it flowering? Now you're starting the process all over if you let this plant flower. Let's say you got your plant in uh, mid-April. Well, now in the south, you're in mid-May. You're starting to hit summer and getting warm. Your plant's not supposed to be blooming. Your only choice is to cut off all of those flowers and reset the plant. But you've lost a month of growing. So those are, and if you're growing these for cut flowers, you've really lost. That, and that, so those are, and I think that's an awesome point that you just made. And these are, and occasionally, you know, I mentioned this to you before we started recording. The, um, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes, people. Um, I talked about this yesterday with, uh, the Dutch growers in particular. And one of the things, Brian, that I brought up was, Sometimes people just don't, I don't want to use the word disrespectful, but I'll be kind and say there's not an awareness of the thought process that has gone into growing these plants. And as Brian has, is, is, has experienced, continues to experience, that every year you're refining your process as a grower. Right. And it's not just like the, oh yeah, we throw some stuff in the ground, some stuff pops up and boom, we get a flower. Hooray. <laughs> right. Yes, I wish it was that easy. I'd I'd be far better off in the world, perhaps. But so, but, so yeah. It, so overall, I'm, the chrysanthemum a, is a good garden plant. If we can just avoid some of these, almost would you say that's really the the challenge? Is maybe the first few weeks, almost that if we get through that, that it's it gets to I be a little bit so, easier. Yeah, those after once the plant, and this is why I don't like people putting them directly in the ground. I've had a few people tell me that they can't grow them in pots, which is, it seems almost foreign to me. 
But I like to get the plants to establish a root base, and I generally say use a either a four inch or a six inch pot, nothing bigger than that, um, for the first pot. So, and you really just don't want to have too much soil for that root to develop in. Otherwise, you know, if you, I'm sure you understand this, if you use a great big pot with all that soil, it's just going to stay wet. There's just not the root base for it. So three to four weeks later, you've got a potted plant and that should be about the time it's ready for its first pinch. And pinching, we just want to take about a third of the top growth off. So the plant is established as a root base. You've pinched it before you put it in the ground, saving your back. And now you can plant it in your garden. Or if you want to train it in a pot, you can go to a larger pot. And then you have that, you know, again, that established root base. And it gets in contact with the other soil. And then it just goes from there. Um, and then it's up to you what you want the plant to be. Uh, chrysanthemum takes general feed. Um, I am not a fan of Osmocote or slow-release fertilizer for the plants. Uh, if you're doing it in the soil, it's different than a pot. I would never use slow-release on a potted plant. Um, personal experience and knowledge of the product is what teaches me that. Yes. Well, well, and, and, there, and there's another issue too, right? So we, we start getting into the other issue that happens. And people occasionally see this uh, with tomatoes might be the thing people are the most familiar in seeing this with. That if we push right. a plant too hard with like a synthetic, like an Osmocote, which is what that is, and it's very high at nitrogen right. count, what we might see is this real push in foliar growth. So we get this big green thing, but no flowers. Right. And that's, right. that's one of the other things. So, so we've got our chrysanthemum. Now, now, I will walk everybody through what I ended up doing. I ended up with the chrysanthemums I got from Brian this year. Um, I have a little <laughs> trial bed. And... My initial thought, and this is where you're going to help us all, Brian, including me, is got them in my trial bed. I have, as we all know, people, I have the magic woodland fairy soil here at Natchez Glen. So the chrysanthemums got rode out for me. They did extremely well with growth all year. Really, 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 really well. But they were very late to bloom. Right. So where um, in there is that just the nature of the plant? Or is there anything that we can do? throughout the year to encourage them to bloom a little earlier? Right. Well, there's three topics to touch on there. Um, this past year, almost everyone east of the Mississippi, including my area, so I'm west of the Mississippi, obviously, experienced what we call heat delay. So in chrysanthemums, we can get this phenomenon where if you, and you think it's, it's really hard to understand at first, but then you'll get it. When the flowers are setting, it's about the hottest part of the year. Um, so usually August, this is September. Well, we got a really hot spell in a lot of the country right around the time of flower formation. And this heat just stopped the plants. And it's literally the term is heat delay. And this happened at Longwood Gardens. It happened at Phipps. It happened for me. Many of the uh, growers on the East Coast experienced this. And it delayed the flowering by two weeks um, average all up and down the East Coast. So that was part of the issue this year. I've, I had never experienced it on that level before personally until this past year. So always something new to learn. The other issue is just that, yes, these plants do bloom later. And we're talking about the garden mums that you see everywhere. Those are the earliest blooming plants there are. They're always going to bloom first of the year, no matter what. So if you put, you know, some of our garden mums, you planted some of those, and then some of the other species, it, it doesn't matter. They're going to bloom sooner than the plants that have the big showy flowers, so say the class one irregular in curve. 
So the only thing that you can do really to trigger that early flowering is what we call shading. So you're, you're starting the long night process early. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we're going back to what we originally said, which was at yeah. the beginning, we're afraid they're going to get too many nighttime hours. That's going to trigger right. them to bloom. But now we're at the end of the process where we've got our plant. It's sizable. It has the energy to be able to produce more buds. And now we're saying, now is the time to have longer nights. So how do we do that? Like, do we, do we have to rent you, a tent? Like, where do we go, Brian, from there with that? Because I'm assuming well, there's a little bit of basic architectural needs here. Yeah, you would have to erect something. A lot of people would just use a heavy shade cloth. But to me, the big thing is just a timing issue. So obviously, you don't want to do this during the hottest part of the day. So you'd really need to put it on, you know, maybe an hour or two before sunset when it's not as hot and then take it off, you know, later in the morning. And you actually have to be there to do it. That's the problem. You you do this for a living. You know, you're there trialing plants and things like that. The average person works and they can't do this. So if they, you know, if you're in northern climates, I often recommend that you either pick the plants that bloom earlier and we give a bloom date rain because we sell to everywhere in the country. And that should be, if you live in the north, naturally, it should bloom earlier because your short, your longer nights, your, your day length gets shorter earlier in the year, where in the south, that's not the case. So if you're, you know, at your latitude, it's, I'm trying to remember when I trigger over there. I want to say it's September for myself. Um, but yes, you can use the shade cloth. Just, you just need it big enough to cover the plants and you want to block out as much light as you can. Um, and, you know, you're just pulling the plant again. Instead of lighting it like I am, you're putting black over it and it thinks, oh, well, it's, it's fall now. I need to bloom before a freeze comes and I can't produce my seed. And no. that's, that's the nature of all plants. They, they're flowering because they want to reproduce and people seem to lose that idea. Yes. It's a survival. Yes. <laughs> it's one of the things that I often talk about here when people come for our flower cutting reservations with dahlias is every time I steal one of its flowers, it's really mad. But it's one of those people that says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to make more flowers. <laughs> that's the way dahlias are. That it's very much like, yeah, you think that's something? Tomorrow you're going to come back and there's going to be four more buds formed and I'm going to show you. I'm going to eventually make these seeds. And right. when we talk about chrysanthemum, this is another thing that I want you to clarify for us. Cold hardiness and frost tolerance of chrysanthemum. This is something that I see out there a lot of sort of almost anecdotal information, you know, <laughs> what level of frost can it take? Where can, and what I'm, what I'm asking here, folks, for those of you to understand is, so if my chrysanthemum has not bloomed yet, but I see the buds right. and they're there, how cold does it need to get or to damage the flower? Or is it going to be able to take it? So what, what's your opinion on this, Brian, as far as the, the cold? My tolerance? opinion is now I have not trialed this personally. Um, what I understand and what I have read, um, I have never, and I grow mine in a greenhouse because I can't take that chance. I have my plants. You know, I, I have been spending this week cutting back plants already to produce fresh vegetative growth to root. So that's where I'm at in the process to give you an idea. For me, if the if you have a open flower bud and you are going to get below freezing or a frost, you need to protect it. So at that point, I would just recommend harvesting it. And you mentioned about cut flowers. It is amazing. I give away bouquets to our church ladies, and we take them to the school teachers. 
And they always come back and just say, how wonderful. And three weeks later, they still have them. So it's, you know, and I think that's part of the allure now where people are seeing how long they can last with the local cut flowers. And that's, that's the real beauty of getting a locally grown plant. It's fresh and you can maintain it. So at that point, back to the frost and freeze, the foliage will tolerate a frost or a freeze far better than a flower. And that should kind of be common sense, but I don't think it is. Well, and that, that makes sense? Yes, absolutely. I think that's been one of the real challenges, you know, for right. chrysanthemum. And, and the other thing, too, that, that I don't know if you've thought about, but we'll, we'll have this conversation out loud, is chrysanthemum being a field-grown cut flower right. is a bit of a new thing. The, the chrysanthemum right. was a heavily produced greenhouse cut flower, but not yeah. so much field-grown. And then on top of it, not so much the particular cultivars that, like, that you're producing. Like That's the other thing. So the, the greenhouse chrysanthemum world was a very small list of what flowers were grown for it. And now right. we're like, oh, will it or won't it? But, you know, there's not a lot of information out there that's really solid. Well, and it's hard. And we were talking about this before, too. I'm selling to people, you know, in California and in North Carolina and in Connecticut. Well, I, I highly encourage them to not just go all in on the plants. You know, don't buy 5,000 plants. Of course, no one buys that many from me. But um, don't, you know, don't spend too much money on an unknown. You need to experience it on your own and learn. I can tell you whatever you want to know about the plant where I'm growing it. And in my experience, growing it in three different locations, but that doesn't mean that's going to be your world. Um, and especially if you were growing in the North, I would not grow these in a field outside. And that's one of those things where we talk about, you know, your crop rotation in a greenhouse world. And the average person doesn't have any concept of what it's like. It's a giant jigsaw puzzle. And you're going through how many weeks does it produce? You know, how, how many weeks does it take to produce the crop? Then when could I put in the space after that? And can I make more money off of something else? Well, and Brian, so there's a lot of thought in that. Brian just brought up one of my favorite subjects. So we're going to get very grower centric here. <laughs> I am a big believer in yield. One of the reasons why I chose Dahlia. Just because I had so oh, much, ex- yeah. I had so much experience growing them here at Natchez Glen, just when I just had ridiculous two acre gardens, was I knew they did well, and they started to bloom in mid June, and I would see blooms carried all the way to a frost date. So I had no doubt going into it, we would see that particular little square foot of ground be super, super, super productive for me. And one of the challenges of something like chrysanthemum. And we're going to speak to the economy here of this. And I think this is one yeah. of the things I, I've, I'm curious for you, Brian, if, if you think about this or not, or, or uh, have worked with people on, is the chrysanthemum is going to take up that square foot of ground, but it's not right. going to give me a bloom until potentially October, where right. the, exactly. the dahlia in that same square foot has maybe by that point produced 30 or 40 stems if I'm doing my job right. right. So right. the marketplace for it doesn't always dictate that. Ironically, right. ironically, one of the weird things here, and I want to get your feedback on this because this is, this is really interesting as I'm, I'm thinking this out loud. Chrysanthemums have historically, because of the greenhouse production, been a pretty cheap wholesale internationally grown <laughs> cut flower yeah. 
where Dahlia, right. Dahlia have been cheaper or more expensive than chrysanthemum, despite the fact that Dahlia in a field setting domestically is so much more productive than the field grown chrysanthemum. So it's a little bit inverse. You know, you would hope as a grower who grows chrysanthemums and some, and, and by the way, people, there are some, as I looked through the catalog before I was speaking with Brian, some that I'm drooling over, right? Like I'm drooling over oh. them. I'm like, these are incredible blooms, the coloration, the in curves, the way that the, the underside of the petal is a different color than the top side of the petal. There's so many incredible attributes to chrysanthemums, but. I would probably <laughs> not see the money for one of those chrysanthemum stems that I would for one of my dahlias, despite the fact it's so much harder to grow them. And they don't, or not hard, but just the yield isn't the same. Have you talked at right. all, like with the floral trade at all? Or you're probably pretty knee deep in your world, I would imagine. But maybe that's something well, we need to draw a little attention to that the chrysanthemum, we're not talking about, you know, the Colombian, Ecuadorian grown chrysanthemums here we're talking about a very unique different thing so the pricing on those two things shouldn't be the same at all well and i think there's a there's obviously more than one factor going into that um and i think that's part of the reason why we've become so popular with the cut flowers again because it's just something you don't see okay all of a sudden you know you and i have known about these plants for a long time as we are in horticulture but a person going to a farmer's market or their local cut flower grower, they might have never seen these plants. And I can tell you just from experience dealing with people in this community, you know, people will stop and or will give them to teachers. They, I didn't know that this plant existed. So there's that novelty side of it. I think the biggest thing you see in the price difference for a dahlia versus a chrysanthemum cut we know the timing on the chrysanthemums where a dahlia, yeah, you can produce it, but in a greenhouse setting, you really have to have a high temperature for a dahlia. For a chrysanthemum, you don't. Um, and then you're looking at day length as well, if I'm not mistaken, on the uh, dahlias. But I think the other mitigating factor is just the shelf life of a chrysanthemum. I mean, you can cut these things and store them for weeks before you even you know, have to worry about them going downhill. Um, it's not a practice that I do, but I'm, the literature says that I can take cuttings and store them for four weeks at 42 degrees and then root the plant and, you know, sell it. I, I, it's not something I do. I don't believe in that because I think it changes the metabolics in the plant. Uh, the plant sugars at that temperature should be telling it it wants to bloom. And I also think it just puts the plant at a stop physiologically. And now you're trying to restart the, you know, basically restart an engine. So those are a couple of things there, I think, that kind of change the market value of the plant. Um, I don't know firsthand, maybe you can speak to this, of the shelf life of a dahlia flower. Yeah, well, and I think that is one of the, the interesting things, that chrysanthemum is such a durable cut flower, where right. dahlia right. is really not comparatively. And right. that, that's, again, I, it's one of the things I, I, I don't know if you've heard me tell this story or not, Brian. So one of the things that I have really, uh, for 2019, that I'm really trying to get a footing on is florist and floral designers and their role in this process. Right. It's a group of people that here you and I are talking about the metabolics of plants. And this is a group of people that for the most part just doesn't have that knowledge base, like anywhere close to it. 
but yet they have been setting prices historically based upon (laughs) demand. And some of it is maybe just a tad out of whack. I'll be kind and say that. Um, And international grown flowers clearly play a huge role in that, just in the the cost of uh, how low it is to grow them and import them to the United States of America. But when we talk about chrysanthemum versus dahlia on a vase life standpoint, it's not even the contest. The chrysanthemum no, is going to no, crush it all day long. So right. if we can bring some awareness to the fact that these are not the international, your grandmother's mums, essentially, right? it is a different product. And maybe it should live in that very high-end cut flower universe where the cost per stem is far greater than what historically it's been of those international counterparts. Right. And that's, that's one of those things where these will not travel, you know, these in the lore of things like a dahlia. Now I can grow in a regular in curve. And one of my favorites is the bola de oro, just the yellow typical mom, but it's, it's old so long and it grows so easy for me here in Oklahoma. Um, and it's easy to train or I don't have to worry about staking it all the time. If I miss one, it's, it's not a big deal. Um, so one of those things you have to consider when putting it in your garden, but to harvest that plant and then to ship it, it does not work. And I know of one large grower in California who's growing them and selling them out there. Um, it really needs to be grown on a local level and then sold locally where you can, you know, you don't have that boxing and shipping and transporting. And that way it's much like a dollar. So, but I think just the overall size of it and the, the rarity, the scarcity, uh, market demand, as we were talking about, is what drives those costs. And I am not on that um, part of the chain. So I I don't drive that and I don't try to drive it. I try to price my plants, you know, reasonably um, based historically off what they were selling them for. But then I had to look at what, you know, as we talked about, building a greenhouse is not cheap. Um, I don't want to tell you what my gas bill is going to be next month. One, one of the one of the hysterical moments of the day that we're recording this podcast, people, is we're seeing this Arctic blast go through, uh, particularly the upper Midwest of the country. And I have a couple of people that I know that do uh, growing production up in uh, southern Wisconsin and central Illinois. And immediately the first thing that went through Steve's mind this morning was, I could not imagine the gas bill to heat those greenhouses today. That was the, <laughs> the first thought in my mind was, okay. I want to keep my greenhouse maybe at 60 if I'm being conservative with what I'm growing today. The outside temperature is negative 21. I got to make up 80 degrees today through gasoline. That the thought of that, people, that is something that's such a hidden or un, or, or for anybody that's new to this, not something you think about. You don't think out loud to yourself, oh my gosh, I have to make up 80 degrees today in heating oil of whatever type it is. So let's right. let, let's transition <laughs> over to this conversation about pretty flowers, Brian. Right. So at the end of me growing chrysanthemums this year and getting some from you last year, one of the immediate things that hit me about chrysanthemum as a, a bloom, there's this very, uh, some people in Dahlia will see this occasionally where it's called like a Dahlia sparkle um, in the light where you <laughs> see a little bit of the water, you know, uh, on the through the actual petal, what I noticed with chrysanthemum that I thought was a real magical thing is it almost on some varieties has this metallic looking sheen 
to them, which is a really where roses are very soft and almost matte finished. The chrysanthemum has this very metallic, lively on some of the varieties kind of glimmer going on. Right. And that's just the inherent nature of the plant. And I think that's what makes them last so long, just that coating uh, in the actual petals themselves. But the ironic part is that they are the flowers are highly susceptible to mold um, when you get a lot of water sitting on them. And I think it's really they get water on them and then that sunlight comes in and acts as a magnifying glass and, you know, burns it more than anything rather than a rot. But that's one of the keys with chrysanthemums. They do not, do not like overhead watering almost under any circumstance. Do not, do not water the foliage. Um, just invite. And I think that's with almost any plant. Um, yes, we know we have rain and nature, but it comes and goes. And then the air, you know, kind of takes away wind generally. And I think any gardener knows when you have several days of cloudy, wet weather, it's bad things are going to happen. Well, and so that, and that even, was, <laughs> that was one of the things also that I noticed in growing them this year. And I think this was my mistake, actually. Um, my trial bed that I have is probably like the most fertile soil I have, period. It used to be where my old <laughs> compost pile was. And I right. felt like if anything, it was just, and, and I have the, I actually was dumb enough to uh, grow eucalyptus, a uh, new variety that I was trialing as well in that same spot. And it was too good. It was a little yeah. too fertile. Yeah. And is natively for chrysanthemums. Talk to us about that for a second, because I know you know this. Give me well, what's like the, native, Asia. the native, <laughs> the native soil type and climate of a chrysanthemum is typically what? Yeah. Asia, um, well-draining soil. It's adapted to almost desert-like conditions in certain places, but really arid. And this is why I think it loves California. So the arid air, um, which ironically enough is not part of Japan, but people don't seem to realize it's not from Japan. <laughs> but then, yeah, a lot of light and temperate temperature. Um, but the, the big key on the soil is it drains and it does not need a lot of feed. And we touched on this earlier. You were talking about um, growing them in a pot and we kind of got into fertilizer. Well, to me, I'm walking through my greenhouse right now to give you an idea because I'm a pacer when I talk. <laughs> but I'm crushing aphids on my fingers as I'm walking through looking at the plant. Um, to me, you're feeding a plant. I'm pushing growth now. Well. The insect world also loves that. So this this is what I equate to the old man and his lawn and complaining about mowing his lawn. Well, then you see him out there and he's fertilizing it. Now he's watering it. Then he comes in, he complains that he has to mow the lawn. Well, quit doing those things and you won't have to do that. <laughs> it will maintain itself. So there's enough nutrient in the soil. Um, if the plant needs feed, it will tell you. But generally speaking, I do not push a lot of feed on my plants. And I've learned that just through trial and error. Um, if I can avoid it, I do not do it. So, um, and I'm sure you know this with dahlias as well, where, you know, you know if there's a nutrient problem. And also, you know, if you pushed it too far and those inner nodes are just reaching for the sky and you can't control it. And what the, the end result is going to be a tall plant with not the best flowers because it's just trying to do it's flowering thing as fast as it possibly can. And that is, so when we look at the chrysanthemum, let's break this down as we wrap up here, Brian. There are multiple classes that the flowers oh, yeah. have been classified in. Now, I'm going to ask you this as a grower-to-grower grower moment here. 
is I find this with dahlias, and I'm curious if you see the same thing. So there's a lot of talk about flower form, but Mm -hmm. not that much talk about plant growing habit. Has that (laughs) been a bit of a challenge? Because I know for me with Dahlia, that's one of my big complaints all the time is, yeah, I love that beautiful photo that someone posted on Instagram of it. It's a gorgeous flower for sure. However, the plant is a dog. It, 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 doesn't, yeah. it produces very weak stem. It doesn't stand up. It needs 17 arm guards to stake it. Has it been similar with that, with chrysanthemum for you? Yeah, we've got some, and I'm looking at them. To me, you know, probably my least favorite class are the class two reflexes, because I think we've got some, um, and just thinking out loud, uh, Bill Holden, it's, it's a trooper. Uh, it gets these big pink flowers. It's kind of a, kind of a gangly grower, just but nice foliage. Uh, you know, big leaves, thick, and produces large flowers. Well, then the next cultivar in the alphabet is, I believe, Doreen Statum. And it's not a great grower to me. Um, again, weak stems, um, you know, tends to be brittle, and it has a great flower color. And that's mainly why we grow it. We keep it for the, the chrysanthemum societies more than anything, but it would not be one I would grow personally. Um, just just for those reasons. It doesn't produce as many stems and the flowers aren't as big or as showy. So yeah, we have, we have the same exact issues. Um, and you know, some of them grow like weeds that literally I'm cutting them back and I'm just thinking, who wants this plant? So so let's walk through that, that that we'll do the very cheesy thing. I always promise people I'm not going to do this, but as you were talking about it, we're going to do this. Give me your, let's break it down in the two, two worlds. Give me like two picks for you that are garden plants that you like for an at-home gardener. Like you said, we don't want you to necessarily get too deep in here, but we want you to buy enough so Brian can take his <laughs> wife and family on some awesome vacations. But what are the, the really garden-friendly varieties that you think are still magical flowers for people that will give them that non-commodity grandma's mom kind of look, but are garden-worthy? Well, I really like the the first plant in the catalog, the Bola de Oro, um, as far as a class one. And I'd probably give you one out of each class that I like would probably be the easiest thing to do because there's just so many. Um, and I think it's an easy grower with good stems and just produces that huge flower with not a lot of work. Um, class two would probably be the Bill Holden, um, and that's a reflex class. Moving into three, I would probably pick Heather James, um, just again, just it's an easy grower, produces a lot of stems, and you know doesn't require all that training. And these are things you and I have dealt with, you know, thousands and thousands of times as we just spoke about. Well, and that's uh, not the, big, and one of the other things. And I'm gonna this is where I'm gonna help you with sales here, Brian. One of the things that <laughs> I would strongly encourage everyone to do, and I, I keep saying this, go back to uh, Natchez Glen House Stories number two, I believe, gardening rules. When you do buy, like Heather James is an example, buy like three of them. That way, for me, number one, it looks better in your garden. You planted threes, people. Everybody yeah. knows this. Number two, it'll give you like a wide range of experience. Maybe that one Heather James that you bought, that you put in that one spot, maybe that wasn't your best soil. Maybe there was a garden thug yeah. next to it taking too much light from it. Whatever it might have been, it's unfair to judge the plant by just one of them. Right. But get three. 
then you have this good feel for that plant. You've seen three of them produced in a cluster, or like staggered in a garden setting. And now you're like, I get it. I get it. Okay, that's what Brian was talking about, why he liked that variety. Right. And I think that's a good rule of thumb. You don't have to do what I do. Like tomorrow I'm buying peonies and I'm yeah. buying like 400. Don't do that. But buy right. some multiples when you pick them. So Heather James is our class three that we like. What's yep. next? Class four decorative. I like Jack Straw. Uh, again, a yellow, but the flower form is different and it produces well. Um, and the stems are sturdy. Um, I'm trying to think through my favorite. Class five, I'd probably pick Gertrude. Again, just a different flower form. Um, it stays a little shorter, um, a little more of a clump grower, but it's always been a good grower for me. I've never had any disease issues with it, anything like that. I would skip the next two classes personally. Um, you can buy a pom-pom mom anywhere. You can buy a single semi-double chrysanthemum anywhere. Uh, if you really want one for garden, I would probably get radiant thyme, um, and it would be what you'd call your florist type. Uh, pot mum, because those were one thing we didn't touch on in the greenhouse world. If you see a plant in a grocery store in a pot, that's a florist type. It's not going to be hard, uh, most likely. So those are, you know, again, those cut flower types, but they've been bred to grow in pots. Uh, anemone class eight, I'm trying to think through. There's several good ones. I, I would probably go with purple light, uh, just, just because I think it produces so much better than some of the other stem-wise. The, no, let me ask you. I'm the, let me ask too. you on the anemone type. Now, in in Dahlia, yeah. there are anemone class, but they're not great for cut flowers. Right. Is is I would assume they, the chrysanthemum ones are probably way better. But if you want to achieve yeah, sort of they, that same look, they hold. But ironically, like you, I don't think they hold as long as some of the others. I think it's a seed production uh, issue where that those florets in the middle where the seeds are going to be. Uh, what are they, rays and discs in the center? They want to go to seed quicker, and they're exposed more to pollination. So it's easier for that insect to get in there and pollinate them and then trigger that process fast. So we're not thinking about it in the right terms, I don't believe. I, th I think that's the issue there. But again, I don't think they hold as long for whatever reason. Um, I think the longest holding one, in my opinion, is the Anderton, which is a new one that was done in tissue culture over in the U.K., and. Um, but I don't think it's as great of a producing plant. Uh, you know, if I was growing for stems and just overall ease, it would definitely be the purple light versus it. Now, and these so, the, the quill varieties that are in here. Yeah, I'm I, always fascinated by. And how big are how big are some of them? Uh, you oh. know, if you, if you don't if we don't get too crazy flower show, we're not going to disbud too much. We're still in the garden setting. Like, how big do they have? The, the, can they get in that kind of setting? I think four to six inches easy. Um, and I will, I love the Seaton's varieties there at the coffee. Um, are we in, yeah, Quill? Yeah. Um, so yeah, Seaton's Ashley or Seaton's Coffee. Um, Judith Baker is another fine one as well. But um, for me, I would probably choose the Ashley just because of those purple flowers. Uh, it's vibrant if you haven't. I mean, the, and that's the thing we talked about with your, we didn't talk about it, but with photos, you see these photos and a lot of these photos came with the company. Um, I try not to doctor any new photo that we take. I tell the person, take the photo, don't misrepresent the plant because I'm like you, I've grown thousands and thousands of plants. I don't want my customers seeing this plant and saying, I can't get this to do that because I know what that's like. 
Well, this <laughs> There's is one nothing of the, worse than that. This is one of the real challenges too, because again, you know, there, there's so many factors that go into coloration in right. plants yeah, as well. Temperature that, is a big one. That's it. So, so, you know, a lot of people have historically thought, oh, well, in this climate, I may not see that same coloration. And sometimes that is true. Sometimes it's it's solar expo- exposure. Sometimes it's minerals. Sometimes there's there's so many factors, people, that right. when you're buying a plant, don't be so precious, right? It's one of those where you go, you know, I I want it to be this, but there's so much magic. Don't get your <laughs> opinion set on like that when you're picking a house color uh, paint, where you're like, it's not quite gray enough, right? We can't redo it. There's no, we can't call <laughs> Benjamin a- Moore and complain and be like, come on. Benjamin Moore, get your gray together. So walk me through this last thing here as far as picks go, Brian. Cut flowers. The spiders, I think, hmm, probably fleur-de-lis is a good one. It's a softer. It's not as big a flower, but it is a great grower. I mean, it just just grows and grows and grows. Uh, Not finicky at all. And then if you really want a big one, um, just a giant spider bloom. I would probably either go with Senkyo Kenshin, which is a true Japanese introduction, or Zariya, uh, just getting huge spider blooms. They they really can get big, 8 to 10 inches if you really do it right. Um, but 6 to 8 is not you know, unreachable by any stretch of the imagination, just with a little work, uh, taking some flower buds off. So the last topic here before we wrap up, if <laughs> we were a flower grower, and we wanted oh. to, and we had a little bit of infrastructure or knowledge, either one, I'd be okay with. Could we get <laughs> chrysanthemums to rebloom in a single yeah. growing season, or are they a singular oh. bloom? Well, you can, but you would still need to. To me, there's two mitigating factors. Are you going to get more money out of that bed space somewhere else? Um. To me, in that setting, I would just keep my own stock plants, um, you know, dig one up and keep it and then take cuttings in the spring rather than trying to do it that way and save yourself the money, which we can't stop people from. But yes, you could. You would have to cut the plants back. And then like right now, you would be triggering the flowering. So, um, so you know, my plants, I'm looking at some of the taller ones. We've got, you know, eight inches of new growth coming up and I'm looking at. Just to give you an idea, I'm looking at Jefferson Park. Uh, one, three, four, five, six. I've got about 11 to 13 stems on a plant coming up that you could start to trigger the flowering on. But again, okay, how long is it going to be till flowering on that plant? So you're looking at almost summer now. We're looking at three to four months. So that would be fine. I just don't know how those blooms are going to produce in a hot area because the chancellor flowers really like that cold finishing to deepen the color. But it can be done. And at that point, you'd harvest the flowers. Um, Of course, you'd have to be shading out probably a lot of the time, too. But, yes, it can be done to answer your question. Um, And that's how they produce them every year, every week of the year, just by using the, you know, environmental controls in a greenhouse. It's either shading out or lighting them. Now, let me... As simple as that. Let me break (laughs) everyone for a second here as we wrap this up. (laughs) So here's what Steve did with my chrysanthemums this year. I put them in my trial bed and I did nothing. All year, nothing. Whenever I get a brand new plant, one of my favorite things to do is nothing. If I have not grown them at scale before, I just want to watch. I want to look at habit. 
I want to see what kind of vigor we have in the plant. How quick does it go? What does it do? What is it reacting to positively? What is it reacting to negatively? Now, going into a second year of this, I go back and I go, well, definitely center pinching, like Brian mentioned earlier in the podcast. Want to go through when the plant's of a certain height. What height would you typically say you want to start center pinching down or cutting down, Brian, in the summer or late spring, depending upon where you're at? Well, again, it'll depend on what do you want the final product of the plant to be. If you're just growing for as many stems as possible, uh, my first pinch, I'm leaving no more than probably five leaves just because you don't want too much on that main center stem to hold all that weight. If you're going to do a second pinch, you went from five to what, potentially 20. So (laughs) you need to think about that, the weight load on that plant. So generally, I leave no more than five. Um, And then after that, it's more of a timing thing for me. Um, I don't pinch mine. I use growth regulators in my greenhouse rather than pinching 5,000 pots, as you might imagine. Um, it's, It's a little daunting. So I will pinch them generally right after I'm done taking my last cuttings, usually around the first week of May. And when I say pinch, I'm cutting them back hard. Um, And then I spray them around July 4th and again two weeks later. So generally we tell people if you want good cuts, do not pinch. Depending on your climate, around July 4th is the time. Um, Because if you pinch later than that, you're going to get shorter stems. You could also get into interfering with the actual formation of the flower bud which is going to delay the flowers, make them shorter, and no one will be happy at that point in time. Exactly. And, so. one, of the, and one of the challenges is, is you don't want to pinch too early. Right. And then you've got an issue with the structure on the plant. And it's we're in the case right. of like dahlias or chrysanthemums too, noticing how vigorous they were last right. year, it just doesn't make a difference. It's like you didn't pinch them, essentially. And you end up with this right. odd and, formation. And I'm curious for you, I hope you didn't dig them all out of the ground. No. Um, I'd be very curious to see what came back for you in that raised bed. Hopefully you didn't have a wet winter, but I would certainly imagine some of them would come back. Well, um, I did a very fancy thing. I will actually admit <laughs> that I actually did late fall. I rooted in ground some branches. Um, oh. I did some pinning on them. So I actually increased my stock a little bit. Now, some of that was on accident and one of them was a theory. So. I think one of the things I want everybody to walk away with, Brian, besides buying multiples of any chrysanthemum they buy or any plant for that matter, this is why every grower in the world likes me. Chrysanthemums have this really magical quality to me. But I think like we mentioned, there were two hijackings of them. We had the grocery store mom. And then we also had the flower show. And you're really, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, Brian. Are you the only person in the U.S. like really doing like the so-called heirloom or lesser known cultivars of mums? There is one other company that I know of in Michigan, but they're more into the garden party type. They have some other types like we do, but as far as I know, they all went under in the 80s to 90s. There was a thanks to, I won't say thanks to, but in part to the big box stores. Um, they just couldn't compete with them, and people started going there. Just and I'm sure many people know, like your local garden centers. You know, they went under because they couldn't compete because of their overhead, and a lot of growers went under. A lot of people don't recognize this: how many growers went under because they had no idea what their inputs were. They were just selling plants because people would come and buy them every year. Um, and 
they kind of had their feet held to the fire and a lot of people couldn't survive it. Well, and that is one of the sad awakenings of, and I, and we talk a lot about this on the podcast uh, frequently is growers historically were in the dark completely about what was going on in the retail side yeah. of the garden center industry. And by the time right. they started to realize what was going on, it was too late. And right. we've seen just a huge shrinkage. So I want to commend you. You're a little bit crazy like me, Brian. So I appreciate <laughs> it immediately. But you're very, you can tell you're not a small project person. You're like, you know, I've thought about, I like, I've had some experience with chrysanthemums. I'm going to buy a chrysanthemum business. You weren't like, I'm going to get a chrysanthemum to grow. No, you were like, I'm buying the company. So the magic of a, of a, of a thing like what Brian's doing here is not only is he producing this incredible group of flowers called chrysanthemums that so few people I think are really aware beyond the grocery store mums, just the amount of coloration, the variety, the shape, the texture, the size, everything that goes into it. But you, as you said at the very beginning, you're really stewarding these plants because w without somebody like yourself, and you're, you're probably in a similar age bracket to me, that <laughs> the group of people that was there before, I mean, you know, I don't want to yeah. make you know too much light of it, but you know the AARP is usually involved yeah. in all of the meetings, right? So having right. somebody yeah, at your life place is really important for these plants. And and I've been very blessed. Just I think about the interactions that I've had, and I still have a strong connection with Longwood. I mean, I'm sending them plants free; they send me plants, which is about the only person they will share their stock with. Um, and they're importing plants from China. I have a few plants or in Japan that I think I'm the only one in the country that has them. Um, you know, they were imported, they tested them, they didn't want them. Hey, Brian, do you want these? Sure. <laughs> and it's one of those, I think that's the rule in gardening. If I have one and you don't, I win. So I win there, but, um, but it's, it's an honor to steward the plants. Like you said, it's not something I take lightly and it's not something I want to see you know, vanish from the horticultural world. If I wasn't doing it, who would? Is, you know, the way I view it. Well, we're going to close on that, people. That Brian and I have gone over a huge amount of information. This is going to be a three-listen <laughs> podcast. I've gotten this comment a couple of times that I literally had to listen to the podcast three times. This is definitely a three-listen podcast because we're not only just talking about this, the chrysanthemum story, but we're also talking about Brian's story of how he comes to chrysanthemums. And then I think it really came across to me, Brian, and you talking about it. And again, just here, the importance of this because we can have chrysanthemum magic forever. The only dreams I've had have been in the daytime. Anything to get away from the straight line the straight line that I walk With all the medicated masses Creating minds outlined in chalk I've always bordered on the edge of something My mind goes where very few dare to tread is it wrong that I'm dying, trying hard to live? So I bend and break my back 
Safe inside. 